Smashfly's total recruitment marketing platform and services proactively market an employer brand and jobs through every recruiting channel. It uses marketing automation technology and modern marketing practices. It empowers companies to attract the right people to their organization using the art and science of fit. It enables companies to generate leads and nurture relationships to hire faster and more cost-effectively. Smashfly's open API allows for integration with all major ATSs, job boards, and third-party recruiting tools. The platform can scale to meet the complex needs of global enterprise organizations. Visit blog.smashfly.com to get great content on recruitment marketing strategy and practices. And good morning. Welcome to HR Examiner's Big Ideas. I'm your host, John Sumser, and today we're going to be talking with Susan Messenger, who is a columnist on HR leadership for HR Executive Online, and she was the president and CEO of the Society for Human Resource Management, SHRM. Good morning, Sue. How are you? I'm great. Good morning, John. Would you take a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, please? As you said, Sue Messenger, I'm a columnist on HR leader leadership with HR Executive Online, and prior to that, I spent, oh, 20-odd years with SHRM, and when I retired from SHRM, I retired as president and CEO. So, so at SHRM, did you, did you work your way into the job as SHRM, an organization where that's possible? Yeah, I did. I started doing, I had worked as a head of the uh, Employment Standards Administration at the Department of Labor. I'm an attorney by training, and uh, came to then ASPA. American Society for Personnel Administration to head up their government affairs shop. And from there, I gradually um, was given more and more responsibilities, um, became chief operating officer, and then um, became CEO. So yes, I, I did sort of work my way through. Yeah, you must have an astonishing view from that lofty perch. And the transition from the Department of Labor to SHRM is you'd think that that would happen more than it does. Uh, you know, it was a great experience. I, I have to say, coming from the Department of Labor, where everything had 18 levels of review, I remember clearly um, we wanted to support somebody's candidacy for a position. I think at the time it was the head of OSHA. And I, I remember so clearly sitting down at my desk, writing the letter, walking in to the then president, getting him to sign it, and then dropping it in the mailroom and thinking, Whoa, this is different, you know, because actually getting something done, it was like, whoa, I like this. Um, so it, it was a going from an agency where I was responsible for about 4,000 employees and revenue, not revenue, but budget of $3 billion and going to an organization which at that time had about 65 employees was quite a change, too. That's good. That's great. Big fish, small pond is is that syndrome. Mm -hmm. Sometime, yeah. sometime we'll have a long conversation. As a very young child, I ran the halls of the Department of Labor on Saturday mornings because my my dad was there um, running the project to build the dictionary of occupational titles. And oh, the DSC, yes. Yes, and and, and I have these DSC. very fond memories of these cavernous. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, halls in the downtown Washington building. But let's let's move on. And what are you doing today? Well, I am doing whatever I damn well please. Um, I'm 
uh, doing a column, like I mentioned, for HR executive. I'm uh, sitting on a commission as a, a public member and as a volunteer for the certified um, financial planners organization. We're in the process of redrafting the the code of conduct, the code of ethics and standard of care that's expected of certified financial planners, which has been a fascinating exercise. Hopefully it'll become a release for public comment sometime this summer. Uh, I'm on the board for the National Academy of Human Resources, which is an honorific for HR professionals with um, uh, good careers. And um, I'm active locally in Cape Cod on, you know, the Conservation Trust Board and some other board activities here. So I'm keeping pretty busy and I'm pretty happy with it. It's an interesting time of year in Cape Cod. It's just about to be the storm of tourists. Um, uh, our, our first guest arrived next week. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, so when you think about you, you've got this long-term perspective on on HR. Who do you think are the big thinkers in labor markets, HR technology, or HR? Well, in labor markets, I always like to read the column, the monthly column by Peter Capelli from Wharton. He um, he he frequently takes a contrarian view, but he backs up his positioning with the with the research, with the science, um, and I think he he really provokes some thought about various issues um, on HR in general. I'm, I have long been a fan of and continue to be a fan of the work of Dave Ulrich, simply because he's done so much research over time. So he's got longitudinal information about um, competencies that HR professionals need. And his research is, is very attractive to me because he doesn't just ask HR professionals. He really goes to the executives that work around the HR professional to get their input on what they think is necessary to be competent in HR. And I think frequently that sometimes the HR research is HR talking to HR about what HR should be doing. And, and I really think that that's a big gap in research. And I think Ulrich has done some interesting work there. And recently he did some work on um, something he's calling the Leadership Capital Index, where he's looking at um, working with private equity firms to sort of look at the leadership qualities of the organization for purposes of predicting likelihood of financial success and how the company is likely to do sort of uh, researching and providing some insights onto what you should be looking for as you, you grow your company. Um, you know, Pat Wright at the um, University of South Carolina is doing some interesting work uh, on uh, CHROs and what takes to be a successful CHRO um, by talking to a lot of, of um, CHROs and looking at their business. And in the technology space, obviously, the work that you do, um, I follow. <laughs> I follow, um, you know, the, the Bose and um, Qtic, their columns. But I, I have to say, as you know, we've talked, the the movement and the pace in the technology space is really, I think, if it's a challenge for me who has time to sit and read a lot of this, it's got to be really a challenge for the HR professional who's really trying to get the day job done and 
needs help in understanding sort of where the technology is going and that they may be able to access and use to help grow the business. Are you following this trend that that um, um, HR is sort of disappearing into operations? You know the uh, yeah. The, I, you know, I think that's always um, sort of the you know it's now it's going to report to the CFO. I really think in the if you look at the successful companies, what the trend line is is more HR reporting straight into the CEO. And the human capital piece of the strategy becoming more important. I think as we see the labor shortage pick up, you're going to see that even more. I think what's happening is, that people may be focusing on is that the use of technology to take care of the administrative of the role, to you know automate and, and self-service those things. I think that's if, if HR professionals aren't doing it, they're they're basically stupid. Um, I hate to use that word, but I really think they're they're missing a great opportunity to free themselves up for more strategic contributions. I think that's right, I, and, and that's what I mean by disappearing HR. The the um, non strategic work like administering it's it's like being a proctor to get payroll yeah. and performance management done. You sort of the the Get the get the ruler out, wrap people on the knuckers knuckles part of the role. Um, I think I think I, is becoming just a seamless part of the interface in your regular work. Yeah, I always um, you know obviously context matters. Each company has its own um, business demands, but I never really felt that payroll needed to be in HR. I mean, at, at Sherm, payroll was handed handled by you know finance because it, it's an administrative function. And, you know, obviously if people are not getting paid properly, HR gets involved, but the, the administrative execution of payroll, it does need to be in HR and people who sort of fight for that turf, I think uh, are short sighted in terms of freeing themselves up from greater contributions. So, so you and I talked before the show about the idea of there being best practices in HR. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I can hear the wind up. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about best practices. I hate the term best practices. I think it's um, context matters and there is no such thing as a best practice because what works in one company may not work in another company and i think for hr professionals that take shortcuts and say i'm just going to do what i read as a best practice in this situation it is ignoring um the importance of understanding their business and what drives their business and really is that going to make a difference or is that where you should be focusing on in your business so i always um prefer the term and use the term competitive practices because there are practices that have made some firms more competitive than others and hr professionals should always be trolling I think there's nothing wrong with stealing good ideas, but within the context of does it work within your organization? Is it going to add to the business success? Is it going to help uh, retain people and lower costs? Um, but this notion of best practices, it just drives me nuts because I think it it, it diminishes um, HR's role 
because it just says, you know, it's a cut and paste approach to the practice of HR management and it shouldn't be. So, so along these lines, do you think, do you think that it's uh, possible to show a direct tie between things that HR does and the financial performance of the company or the schedule performance or the quality performance of the company? I, I absolutely think so. And I think the, you know, the big, the buzzword is, these days are big data. I think there's um, greater ease of accessing information and being able to gain insight from that information that you might not otherwise be able to get so that you can sort of sort through and figure out um, more easily, especially in larger organizations, what's the profile of the most successful um, salesperson in your organization, and then how do you back up and make sure that that's what you're recruiting and sourcing is generating for candidates? I, I think there's absolutely um, insights that can be gained and, and used to drive business results. So that's, I mean, that's, heck, heck that's, just reducing turnover a little bit, which is like low-hanging fruit, um, can increase, um, you know, reduce costs. It's which can be significant. I just, I just haven't seen ever, and, and and I look at a lot of stuff. I haven't seen ever a tool or a company or a report that actually says dollar in here, dollars out there. So there's a direct correlation between something that you do in HR and some performance measure. There are insights galore. There are insights galore, and there's lots of PowerPoint dollars flying around. But I just I don't see the the idea that there's an ROI on HR actually manifesting in anything. I think the question, the the point that you're highlighting is, I think there's lots of correlation. I think it's a little bit more difficult to show causation. Uh, I think if you look at for example, the um, the Gallup 12 questions. I think there are a lot of companies that have shown when they increase their scores and engagement, store profitability goes up. Um, now, the question obviously is, is it, you know, the various specifics of those questions that cause that, you know, the answers to those questions that cause it, or does the total of the response in that survey indicate something broader that's going on that's really causing? So I think that's it. But I don't think you always have to be able to pinpoint causation where you have correlations that give you outcomes that show um, cost reductions or, or um, you know, revenue generation. Um, I think there are lots of areas of business that, that you don't have that point-to-point -point link um, but there's enough information there that encourages continuing in that path. Got it. So you write a regular monthly column for HR Executive Magazine, and, and in your latest, in your latest, um, you're talking about legislative conferences. What what impact mm -hmm. do the professional associations actually have on legislation? Um, I think it's significant, and it's not because they're spending money on PACs and getting candidates elected, because most don't have a PAC, a political action committee. But what they serve is as educators. 
Um, and it can be very impactful for somebody from the profession to sit down with a legislator or their staff and explain, let me tell you what the consequences are of this proposed legislation. Let me tell you what the, how this will impact this business or these people working within this business. And frequently, you're able to explain it in the context of, and this will be the impact on job growth or job loss. This will be what happens with employment in my organization as a result. And elected officials, above all things, and I think our most recent election shows it, care about employment levels in their district, in their country, and, you know, how how easily people can find jobs. And so if you're able to sit down with a legislator and say, you know, this could cost jobs in our district, it gets their attention. And even if they don't agree with you, I really believe that there's value in building a relationship so that when something else comes up, they first check before they move forward on it to better understand the consequences of legislative action. I think people don't fully appreciate that in a lot of these congressional offices and state legislative offices, the staff um, really drive a lot of what happens because no member of Congress can cover every subject that comes before them. They just can't. And the staff frequently is under 30 and has never met a payroll. And right. meeting a payroll is a powerful uh, educator. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Yes, it, is. It, it really does make a difference. And, I want those um, hours of sleep back. <laughs> so, you know, I, I really do think um, it can make a difference. You're not going to win on every legislative issue, um, but just educating um, legislators really matters. So, so employment and educating legislators, what are the other big issues that, that the professional associations in HR um, should be paying attention to? Well, I think paying attention to, you know, where the profession is going, you know, and this isn't just HR professional associations, but where the profession is going and where it needs to go. I think one of the challenges for an association, and we saw it, um, you know, we did some work with the American Society of Association Executives at SHRM, and one of the research results that they showed was those associations who try and drive their membership in a certain direction are likely to fail, and that they need to be listening to their members and following where their members are taking them. And it's a very um, delicate balance when you see... Um, because you have the benefit of the research and the insights of uh, available to you at the association level, sort of where things are going and trying to help the profession understand where they need to be without um, disrespecting where they are. And so um, I think associations play a critical role of helping people understand what the future may look like so that they can get better prepared, but they can't basically say, and you can't come to this profession unless you do what we say. It's a very delicate balance. So, so it used to be the case, maybe we'll be someday in the future again, that, that legislation moved along relatively carefully considered lines. <laughs> um, and, and today it seems like 
short attention spans, policy statements in 140 characters, and um, the ability to whip up fear and uncertainty in the electorate um, are closer to the way that that it works. Um, do you think Do you think professional associations need to get better at scaring people? Um, I hope that's not what happens. I, I I hate the thought that the polarization in politics that we're seeing today becomes normalized in terms of how to get things accomplished. Um, because I I don't think it serves the the public. Um, I I just I you know I'm almost speechless to describe the environment in Washington today. I mean, once upon a time I was a registered lobbyist with Sherm, and I look today and I think I thank God I don't have to deal with that environment. Once upon a time there was a strong um, middle where you had um, moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats, and there were enough numbers in that moderate group that they controlled the outcome of any legislation. There are not that many moderates anymore. It seems that they're at each in each political party there are you know greater numbers in the extremes, and so it's a every issue becomes sort of a win-lose. Either you win it or you lose it, rather than let's move the football down the field. Let's make some progress in an area that we know we need to serve the public. So I hope professional societies like Sherm help continue to drive the thought of let's be informed and understand what consequences are so that the decisions that are being made are have the greatest information possible and aren't simply done by knee-jerk. I think the political environment, too, um, people to get elected, they focus at the 140 soundbite level, um, and then they enact legislation with broad broad language and then leave it to the regulators to regulate and to fill in the gaps. And so I think there's a growing need and an ongoing requirement for associations to not just pay attention to the legislative arena, but really focus on the regulatory environment because that which isn't written into the legislation may be drafted into the regulation. Oh, that's really interesting. So, so how do you, how do you, get that message out, right? If, if that's where professional associations need to turn into the mechanics of regulation um, and bringing moderate moderation to that part of the business, um, how do you message the membership to say that this is something that's in your interest because it's, it's a new set of civics, right? Well, it's, I think that um, I, I know Sherm has been quite effective in creating a state legislative reps and chapter legislative reps who report at membership meetings and annual meetings about what's going on in Washington and how to get involved. Sherm submits comments regularly on regulatory proposals of concern to the profession, and they post it and they they give links to their local chapters and state organizations to encourage them to, to also submit comments on the subject, giving them some information that they can use to provide prepare their own comments. Um, a lot of chapters have active um, legal uh, members, and the, the lawyers will frequently volunteer to draft up comments on the regulatory because some of the regulatory stuff can be pretty Byzantine and, and um, 
you know, tedious. Um, and, you know, lawyers, I'm a lawyer. We're good at that stuff. Um, so I, I think associations are doing a good job. I think uh, one of the associations in Washington that's very effective, Human Resource Policy Association, unlike SHRM, which is a professional society made up of individuals, HRPA is a corporate membership, and they're quite active in sort of mobilizing corporations to be aware of pending legislation and regulations and to encourage them to b- submit comments. Frequently, though, associations play an important role because sometimes a company doesn't want to be on the front lines of a public policy issue. And so they work with their associations, a trade group or a professional society, to get information to the policymakers on what the impact and implications might be. That's interesting. So, so why should an individual join a professional association? What's the deal? I think it depends on what the individual needs in their, you know, their, you know, the particular situation. I think um, a local chapter from SHRM provides a network of people to do what I call the sanity call. You, you know, HR has, deals with a lot of confidential information. And sometimes you need to pick up the phone and call a colleague and say, "Am I crazy or are they?" Um, and it provides a network that you can tap into um, to help expand your knowledge base and, you know, gain uh, ideas of ways to attack a problem. I think at the national level, you can get the professional development opportunities that frequently can't be provided at a local level, um, the certification, which is really, I think, effective more in helping you know what you don't know. Because so Mm -hmm. many people go into HR out of other fields and they don't you know, I, I don't. You know, I started doing payroll, and now I'm doing employee relations. Now they want me to do compensation. You don't know what you don't know, and so uh, I think certification provides sort of a a table of all the information uh, topics you need to be aware of, and then you can go deeper based on whatever your need is. But you know, if you're doing compensation, sure may not be the right one. It may be World at Work, which focuses on on compensation and benefits issues. Um, if you're a senior in an organization, an individual membership organization may not meet your needs. You may want an industry association of, you know, they're frequently uh, senior HR uh, professionals in different industries get together because you're interested in what they're seeing in the industry more than building your own skill set. You know, you've got your skill set. You've got the position. You you know what needs to be done in HR. You're trying to figure out how to enhance the drivers of HR to drive the business. So I I think a lot of it depends, uh, you know, where you are in your own career on what kind of an association membership makes the most sense for you. And as you get more senior in an organization, your time gets more limited. So you have to be more careful in your selection. Got it. Got it. So, so this has been a great conversation. Are there any things that we should have touched on or some uh, bullet points you want to make sure that people take away from our talk? No, I think we've covered a lot. Well, fantastic, then. Would you take a moment to reintroduce yourself and tell people how they might get a hold of you? Uh, Sue uh, Messenger. Uh, columnist and HR executive online. You can find me at sue at suemessenger.com. And the name is spelled M E I S 
I-N-G-E-R. As I told you, the family goes with Messenger because during World War I, my grandfather was told as a recent immigrant he was going to be called John Messenger, not Hans Meisinger. My father respected it, and so did the kids. That's that's a fantastic story, and, and it's great to have a messenger talking about HR leadership and HR executive online. Thanks for taking the time to do this, Sue. I really appreciate you dropping by for the conversation. Thanks, John. Have a good week. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Big Ideas, and we've been talking with Sue Messenger, who is a columnist on HR leadership for HR Executive Online. Thanks for checking in, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. HR Examiner's Executive Conversations are sponsored by Movalot the leading communication and execution platform that introduces accountability to the workplace to boost productivity and engagement so your teams can work smarter, not harder. Learn more about how you can experience a smarter way to engage at Movila.com. That's M-O-O-V-I-L-A.com. com.